Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, military historian Anthony Beaver talks about Hitler's last gamble in Ardennes 1944. Anthony Beaver is the author of Crete, the Battle and the Resistance, Stalingrad, Berlin the Downfall, the Battle for Spain, D-Day, the Battle for Normandy and the Second World War, amongst others. His books have appeared in 30 languages and have sold more than 6 million copies. A former chairman of the Society of Authors, he has received honorary doctorates from the Universities of Kent, Bath and East Anglia and is a visiting professor at the University of Kent. In the United States, he received the 2014 Pritzker Literature Award for Lifetime Achievement in Military Writing. And Anthony's latest book is Ardennes 1944, Hitler's Last Gamble, which is what we're going to be talking about today. So, Anthony, thank you very much for joining me on Little Atoms. Good to be here, Neil. This is um, it's a fantastic read. You go through the, this campaign pretty much day by day, and I mean, I guess we're going to talk all the way through the campaign. There's a lot to cram in. Spoiler alert, we're probably going to give away what happens at the end. But um, before we start, actually, on, on the Ardennes, going back to the subject of one of your previous books about D-Day, the invasion of France has happened, but it's a long way to, to Berlin, the subject of another one of your books. So let's talk about what happens to the Allied offensive once they're in France. The fighting in Normandy was far tougher than anybody had expected. They'd assumed that about 10,000 people would be killed on D-Day and drowned. But the, in fact, uh, the casualties were far lighter, despite saving Private Ryan and Omaha Beach and all that sort of business. Uh, in fact, don't let's forget that as many French civilians were killed on D-Day as Allied soldiers. And in the fighting in Normandy, where the Allies, of course, tended to rely on their advantages, which tended to be air power and artillery, um, not surprisingly, a lot more French civilians died. In fact, it's one of the great ironies that democracies at war tend to kill more civilians simply because to reduce their own casualties because of pressure at home from parliament, press, public opinion, uh, they will rely that much more on high explosives. Mm. And that is why, in fact, more French were killed by the British and the Americans in the Second World War than British killed by the Luftwaffe. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that when I found that when doing the research, I must say it was was quite a shock. But it did did bring out this terrible contradiction about democracies at war. Anyway, the fighting in Normandy was far worse than expected, particularly for the Americans in the Bocage. And the British uh, and Canadians who found themselves fighting the elite of the SS Panzer Divisions brought back really from the Soviet Eastern Front. And finally, though, in July, uh, end of July, the Americans achieved the breakthrough on the West. Montgomery had always refused to acknowledge the possibility that the Germans actually were going to concentrate the bulk of their forces against the British on the left, on the uh, eastern side, because if they broke through, uh, it would have trapped all the... Germans further over towards the Atlantic. And um, that's why the British and the Canadians had such a tough time. Anyway, the Americans broke through, and then uh, suddenly Patton had his glorious dash for the Seine uh, with his Third Army, which had just been brought into existence. And the German collapse in France was very rapid. So what you saw was that Normandy had become, in many ways, the sort of the sacrifice for the whole of France. Mm-hmm. The rest of France was hardly touched by destruction, thank God, uh, but Normandy suffered very, very badly indeed. And that dash to the Seine, um, of course, caught the Germans out. It triggered this huge retreat right the way across France, 
Uh, it wasn't just German forces on the Atlantic and the Mediterranean coast who had to start pulling back rapidly towards either Dijon, which was where they had a sort of uh, holding area, uh, or even towards the German frontier. And of course, the advance happens quite quickly. There are big sort of you know marquee victories like the liberation of Paris and stuff. But the quicker an advance is, obviously that presents problems, doesn't it? It certainly presented problems in logistic terms mm-hmm. because... Uh, with the supplies coming in through Cherbourg, which had the port which had been heavily mined by the Germans and had only just really started to be cleared. Uh, otherwise, they were coming in over the beach at Omaha, the Americans and the British on the Mulberry and Aramanche. And so from that point of view, the uh, advance then suddenly turned out to be far quicker than anybody had expected, which was using up vast amounts of uh, fuel and gasoline for the American armor divisions, which were uh, using uh, thousands of tons of gasoline per day. More fuel than they were delivering. More fuel than they were delivering, even with the idea of the pipeline under the ocean, Pluto, Mm -hmm. of the uh, oil being delivered in that particular way. It got there. It's a question of how you got it to the front. And Mm -hmm. this is when they started developing what was called the Red Ball Express, where these poor African-American drivers were sort of literally being forced to uh, drive not just through the night, but day and night to the point of total exhaustion. And um, many were killed in accidents. That was the need at the time. So the whole question was eyes were on Antwerp. And uh, the capture of Antwerp uh, was vital. But in the the dash after the liberation of Paris, the sort of dash towards the German frontier and into the Low Countries, exhilaration, shall we say, victory euphoria, Mm -hmm. took hold. And Montgomery particularly, who already was creating tensions with the Americans by his demands uh, to become the land forces commander and therefore to have the bulk of the supplies, because Montgomery sort of said, I should be the one, you know, to charge through. Now, he was right in a way because there were the V2 uh, sites and they knew that those were about to be used in Holland and uh, they knew that um, Antwerp had to be captured and so forth. But Montgomery was seduced by the attractions of an airborne operation using uh, what was called the first uh, Allied Airborne Army um, to get across the Rhine, because he felt if he was the first to cross the Rhine, then Eisenhower would have to give in the bulk of the troops and the bulk of the supplies. Now, I, I'm of an age where I grew up hearing you know, stories about Montgomery, about the battles in the desert and, yeah. and Europe. He's one of the, you know, the great heroes of the, of the British Second World War campaign. He doesn't come across very well in this book. Well, the trouble with Montgomery was he did a, a vital service, if you like, in North Africa. He was very good at training troops. He was very good at sort of instilling morale and so forth. But in fact, in actually in North Africa, most of the reforms that were necessary had already been carried out by Auchinleck. Uh, but Auchinleck had lost Churchill's confidence, and so Montgomery was put in. But Montgomery was a very cautious general, partly for good reasons, because in the First World War he'd been horrified by the slaughter and he didn't want to waste lives. But on the other hand, there were other commanders who said, actually, he, in the longer term, he may have lost more lives by caution. Patton especially criticised Montgomery in that particular way. But it's always one of the great quandaries, if you like, of military leadership and command, of whether if you take a risk you're going to lose more lives or actually... Um, save lives. And Patton often felt that it was the pussyfooting around of Allied generals which actually caused so many lives. And he may have been right in Normandy. And of course, when he had his breakthrough, um, he lost very few casualties, it's Mm -hmm. certainly true. Um, But everything was going his way at that particular point. But then Patton himself, when he came up against Metz, he lost a lot of men. Mm -hmm. Um, His third army got a very bloody nose. Um, And we'll come on to it later in what happened in the Ardennes. So it's, it's one of the great debates, if you like, about sort of, you know, military command and military strategy of, uh, you know, do you take the risk and uh, the risk of the lives of men? But um, certainly in the fighting in the Bocage, the German generals criticised uh, the Americans for sort of constantly mounting single battalion attacks, which they said was brilliant for training their new troops. Um, because they could deal with it, there wouldn't be a breakthrough and all the rest of it. Um, And actually they were able to inflict horrendous casualties on the Americans in these small attacks. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you know, the terrain was not good for launching with all of those hedgerows and all the rest of it, dense hedgerows uh, and little tracks. The terrain was not good for launching a big sort of punchy attack of the sort that Patton wanted. I'm Natalie Haynes, you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. 
So also what's going on while this advance is going on, and you've mentioned um, Antwerp as being the sort of the key target, another port that would mm. be much, you know, much further up, up the country to enable resupply. All of these, there's a whole list of places that, that begin with an A, not least the Ardennes, but Arken and Arnhem, which are going to come into this story shortly. And as the Allied forces are heading to those places, there's politics going on, and again, Montgomery is playing a rather rather key part in that. Well, on the 1st of September, the announcement was made that General Omar Bradley, uh, who'd been commanding the 1st US Army, was now going to command the 12th Army Group, uh, which therefore meant that he was no longer under Montgomery's command. I mean, that had been fairly notional during the fighting in Normandy. And it meant, basically, that Montgomery was now an Army Group commander, the 21st Army Group, equal with Bradley. Uh, The British press behaved ridiculously and very stupidly uh, by saying our national hero has been insulted, etc., etc. And Churchill felt obliged uh, to promote Montgomery to uh, field marshal, which is basically a five-star appointment. Mm -hmm. Now, um, Eisenhower was only a four-star general, and Bradley was only a three-star general. So, I mean, from the Americans' point of view, I mean, this was pretty um, irritating, Mm -hmm. and uh, you've only got to read Patton's diary about sort of, you know, how sick they were to hear the field marshal and all the rest of it. Um, Monty's ego was extraordinary, and as a character, it's rather difficult to understand how he could have made some of the really preposterous remarks that he used to make in terms of his self-regard. And, for example, I mean, when he went to Buckingham Palace, he said to um, the King's uh, private secretary in the cells, he said, uh, uh, showing his berry, he said, you know, this hat is worth three divisions. My men see it from afar and they say, there's Monty and they're ready to fight anybody. Nobody with an ounce of self-knowledge would ever come up with sort of, you know, remarks like that. And I, therefore, in this book, rather uh, perhaps controversially, sort of suggest the possibility um, that Montgomery suffered from, uh, or in fact had, um, high-functioning Asperger's. Mm -hmm. And it's quite interesting, actually. You know, you sometimes think that this is sort of uh, um, rather uh, new and shocking. Of course, you find that, in fact, you've reinvented the wheel. Um, Somebody then passed me a a paper written by a psychiatrist, um, professor of psychiatry at uh, Trinity College Dublin, um, who'd gone into this in the early 1980s about Montgomery and um, high-functioning Asperger's or whatever. Uh, So I certainly wasn't the first there. Uh, but others, and certainly Montgomery supporters, were, were sort of rather horrified by this and, and didn't want to uh, accept it at all. But of course, you can't know for sure. You can't sort of uh, analyse or um, diagnose somebody long after their death anyway. And of course, in Montgomery's day, nobody had even heard of it. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's only one of the ways that Montgomery was... Uh, to explain, um, it was only one of the ways that one can explain how Montgomery behaved in such a totally thoughtless way with the Americans, mm-hmm. uh, not realising what the effects, the disastrous effects of his behaviour would cause. And that whole, I mean, the, the battle that would eventually lead to the Canadians, I think we call taking um, taking Antwerp, but mm-hmm. the battle, part of that, uh, Operation Marky Garden, the battle of that for Arnhem, which again was, mm. was, was Monty's doing. There was a lot of almost pointless failure going on. Before. Well, the trouble was, the, point, the, the failures came mainly because British, American and Canadian generals all thought that this was uh, August 1918 mm-hmm. and that the German army was collapsing as it had collapsed in August 1918. Everybody started to think that the war was going to be over by Christmas, quite literally. Uh, in America, they even started cancelling contracts for artillery shells. Mm-hmm. And the British government, the only person actually who was right uh, to be suspicious that this was not going to be the case, of course, was Churchill, uh, who was very, very dubious. But um, even so, the war cabinet um, basically took the end of the, end of the year uh, for planning purposes as being the end of the war. Um, so everybody made that particular mistake. It wasn't just Montgomery. Uh, and it wasn't just Montgomery um, who was re- uh, responsible alone for the failure to capture, not Antwerp itself, but the approaches to Antwerp. Mm-hmm. What had happened was, um, on the 4th of September, the uh, 11th Armoured Division had actually seized Antwerp, helped by uh, the resistance. And um, in, the Germans were totally taken by surprise. Uh, the trouble was that they didn't then do anything to clear the Scheldt estuary mm-hmm. because, you know, the port, uh, even though it's captured intact, was no good if you couldn't control the estuary. And uh, the trouble was that the German 15th Army, which had been retreating 
from the Pas de Calais, were commanded by General von Zangen, was very, very effectively brought back and then uh, kept a pocket on the uh, south side of the Scholt estuary, uh, the Boskin's pocket, and then also held um, the whole of the peninsula to the north. And the Navy, um, Admiral Ramsey, Admiral Cunningham and all the rest of it, had warned Chafe, had warned uh, Eisenhower, and they warned Montgomery, you know, that this would be disastrous. Um, as Cunningham said, you know, it was as much use to us as Timbuktu if you didn't have the mm-hmm. approaches to the Scholt. And uh, anyway, that, so that was one sort of disaster there. Um, and Montgomery, although he was desperate uh, for partly for uh, egotistical reasons to be the first across the Rhine, and therefore embraced the idea of Operation Monkey Garden, um, he was also supported in this by Eisenhower, but especially in Washington by General Marshall, and above all, of course, by General Arnold, um, who commanded the U.S. Air Force, because. They had, at huge expense, created this um, first Allied Airborne Army, uh, which had the two American uh, Airborne Divisions, the 101st and the 82nd, um, the British Airborne Divisions, the 6th and the 1st, and also the Polish Airborne uh, Brigade. And they wanted to use it, and one plan after another to use it in the advance from Normandy had been basically scrapped because the troops on the ground were advancing far faster and every single time uh, these poor paratroopers were ready to jump almost and lined up at the airfield and suddenly the um, order came through cancelling at the last minute uh, because the advancing troops already reached the target area so they weren't needed anymore. So this is why there was this compulsion to use it. But the trouble was, it was a disastrous plan, um, both in terms... I mean, it was really an object lesson in how not to plan an operation. And the idea that, you know, by seizing all the bridges on the way to Arnhem meant that you could roll out this carpet, as they called it, underestimated two things. In fact, it totally ignored two things. Uh, One is the old saying that no plan survives contact with the enemy. And the other was, of course, that the Germans were brilliant at recovering from disaster. And they ignored both of those. And actually, the plan never deserved to work, uh, unfortunately. And it was not just a heroic disaster. It actually was a a predictable disaster, which Mm -hmm. should never have been taken on. So let's go on to the... uh, the the German side then. So what becomes from the German side the Operation Watch on the Rhine? Why does let's talk about why Hitler eventually decided on the Ardennes on that strategy? Hitler's obsession at this particular stage uh, was of trying to hit back. He'd tried it in Normandy with uh, the offensive towards Avranches and um, that had failed. He'd been warned. I mean, it was too little too late. The idea was to sort of cut off Patton's Third Army charging towards Paris. But, you know, they simply didn't have the forces. Even if they managed to break through, they wouldn't have had the forces to hold open the corridor. Um, But Hitler was determined to do it again. And uh, he, in the early part of um, September, uh, he actually was suffering badly from um, jaundice and was in bed in the Wolfschanzer in East Prussia. And he started having these sort of map fantasies. And by then, of course, the German troops had withdrawn to basically a line from Holland down along the German frontier. And he, which was basically the Westfall or the Siegfried Line, as the British and the Americans called it. And he then had this fantasy that if they attacked through the Ardennes, which was going to be, which was weakly held at that particular point by the Americans, and swept through from the Eiffel into the Ardennes, all forested area, which he thought could conceal them from air reconnaissance, uh, cross the River Meuse, and then swing north towards uh, Brussels and uh, Antwerp, uh, he would cut off the British and the Canadians and force them into an, a Dunkirk-type evacuation. Mm-hmm. Now, this was a fantasy. I mean, it was one of his worst map fantasies, in a way. Uh, the trouble was, of course, that what he was looking at was war on three fronts at that particular stage, the Italian front. Now, if he launched a counteroffensive in Italy, that would have made no difference, even if he'd pushed them back mm-hmm. from 100 miles or something like that. If he'd launched it on the Eastern Front against the Red Army, that would have been eventually smothered by yeah. the vast manpower superiority of the Red Army. Um, but on the Western Front, he felt that this, again, other fantasy of his, that the Allied coalition was very fragile and would mm-hmm. break apart, uh, and that if he could knock, say, even just the Canadians out of the war, but even perhaps the Canadians and the British, who he felt were war-weary, then he might come to a deal with the Americans mm-hmm. and then concentrate all of his forces on the Eastern Front. Now, none of his generals believed this. They were absolutely appalled. And on the 16th of September, which actually was the day before the paratroop drops 
on uh, Arnhem, Nijmegen and Eindhoven. Hitler announced it um, at his Lagerbosprechung, his sort of situation conference, and there was absolute horror, particularly from General Guderian, who was in command and responsible for the Eastern Front, because uh, he knew perfectly well that if all of these forces were concentrated and that would weaken the Eastern Front and were then involved in this counterattack in the West, um, it wouldn't be that long before the ground froze hard mm-hmm. and Stalin would launch his winter offensive. is Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Anthony Beaver and we're talking about his book Ardennes 1944, Hitler's Last Gamble. And so Anthony, I want to talk about why the Ardennes really, though the Germans had advanced into France through there before, so they knew that was obviously a possibility. But you've mentioned the terrain, so um, I want to talk about the terrain and it's, it's obviously getting towards the winter as well, so it's going to be, you know, the weather's going to be bad. And I guess to look into this, let's take a step back before the Ardennes campaign and around the the fight for Arken, there's a there's a forest, the Hergen Forest. The idea of uh, coming through the Ardennes anyway was something which certainly should have uh, registered, should we say, with the Allies because not only had the Germans done it uh, in 1940, but they'd also done it in 1870 and in 1914 uh, as well as in 1940. So the idea that it wasn't going to be an active front was a very, very uh, unwise uh, assumption on the part of General Bradley, but we'll be coming back to that later. The reason why the Germans defended the Hürtgen Forest, which is just to the north of the sector where the, uh, Hitler was planning to launch his great Ardennes offensive, was simply because they had to make sure that they could secure that particular uh, flank of the forthcoming operation. Now, it had been chosen by General Hodges and um, supported by General Bradley as the area for advancing to the River Ruhr and then on to the River Rhine. Uh, partly because on the map it didn't look quite so far. But uh, in fact it was a formidable, um, it was appalling terrain in terms of dense pine woods, uh, deep ravines. Uh, there was a certain amount of mixture of uh, a little bit of pasture and uh, beech and oak on the uh, broad um, ridges. But for American advantages in air power and in tanks. The Hurtgen Forest couldn't have been a worse place to pick. And the men going in there, the silence of the forest, I mean, the only sound was sort of the wind in the trees and um, perhaps the mew of buzzards before the sounds of war wrecked all of that. They found it deeply spooky, and it certainly contributed, I think, to the very high rate of psychological casualty which mm-hmm. uh, the American and, to certainly be the Germans, uh, were going to suffer, but much more the Americans. Anyway, the idea was that they were would sort of punch their way through. But, I mean, the whole plan was so badly thought out. I mean, General Hodges uh, basically was expecting one division. In fact, he then split it up and had only about one infantry regiment uh, basically attacking into this forest. Um, Well, considering the forces that he had at his uh, disposal, um, this was absolutely mad. But it woke up the Germans to the threat in this particular region, and so they started reinforcing it massively. There's this incredible scene once the fighting starts of um, the shells bursting higher than the normal, like in the, on the tree line. Well, um, Hemingway does describe the fighting there as Passchendaele with tree bursts. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was mud, smashed trees in all directions. 
And um, the point of the tree burst, of course, was that it was rather like fighting in sort of ships of the line in the uh, 18th century because uh, um, the flying splinters of wood caused as many casualties as the shrapnel. I mean, this is one of the reasons why the fighting was so terrific and horrible. Um, it was also very savage indeed. I mean, I think one of the most horrifying examples I came across was of a, a, a badly wounded American soldier who was found by three German soldiers, and they put an explosive charge under him so that he couldn't move, uh, which was booby-trapped, and then left him, having stripped him of all of his possessions. And this poor uh, wounded man had to try and stay awake for 72 hours to warn the people who found him or rescued him eventually, um, of the booby trap, because, you know, not just he would be blown up, but they'd be blown up with it. Hitler obviously wanted to keep the, the idea for this offensive top mm. secret, and to a, you know, to a certain extent did, but more specifically, it was, it did come as a, a surprise to, to the Allied forces that this happened. What did the Germans do to keep it a secret until the last minute? Well, Hitler allowed um, only a very few numbers of uh, senior officers in uh, for the briefing to begin with, uh, only chiefs of staff of armies and so forth. And then it was only briefed down to sort of core level immediately underneath. And everybody had to sign a piece of paper saying that they would, uh, they knew that they would be shot if they revealed any information about it. And yet, the astonishing thing which I found in the British archives here in Kew was that in the uh, files of SESDIC, which were the Combined Services Detailed Interrogation Centre, the German Jews who were listening into the conversations of uh, German generals who'd been taken mm. prisoner uh, found that they knew all about it. And yet, when this was reported up the line, nobody took it seriously. Here were German generals talking about this huge offensive which was being prepared um, in their um, prison camp. And this was reported to the war office and uh, to Schaeff. And nobody reacted because they simply couldn't believe that the Germans were capable of getting together a counterattack force of that size. So let's talk about the first, the first few days of the offensive. How does it go for the Germans? Well, the Germans did achieve that surprise. And this was because of the intelligence failure on the Allies side. Uh, It actually shows one of the key lessons, if you like, of uh, intelligence, if you like. And that is, um, there's no point just putting yourself in the boots of your opponent, because you're putting yourself in the boots of your opponent, but with your own mentality and your own thought processes. So you want to understand his thought processes. And they assumed, as assumed, that um, Phil, General Feldmarschall von Rundstedt, who was the Commander-in-Chief West, um, was the one who was organising the offensive. And they used to call it Rundstedt's Offensive for a very long time. Rundstedt was furious when he heard about this, because he, he had rejected it entirely as a very, very bad idea. But it, it does show this thing. They, what they should have done was to have put themselves into the mind of Adolf Hitler uh, rather than into, uh, um, as I say, positioning themselves from Richter's point of view. Uh, because dictators don't think in the same way as generals. And there's always going to be a touch of megalomania. And we found this also with the intelligence failure over Saddam Hussein and every mm-hmm. Iraq. Anyway, they made that major problem and they simply could not believe that the Germans could get together a sufficient force of that particular size. And um, they could not imagine them coming out of the Ardennes because they had believed that all of their information, basically the the golden goose, if you like, was Ultra at Bletchley Park, and um, Ultra picked up nothing. Now, if you're going to have complete radio silence amongst German formations preparing for an attack, obviously Bletchley was not going to pick up anything, Mm -hmm. and they made that fatal assumption too. So anyway, the uh, Allies were completely caught out, and so when the Germans launched their attack... On the morning of the 16th of December, early at about four o'clock, the uh, Americans couldn't really believe what was happening. Mm -hmm. And um, they had in the north, uh, on the northern part of the sector, there was Sepp Dietrich's uh, Sixth Panzer Army, which uh, included most of the SS Panzer Divisions. Uh, And then further to the south, there was General von Manteuffel's uh, Fifth Panzer Army. And then further down, there was the Seventh infantry army, basically, which was just going to protect the flank. Mm-hmm. And these, the two panzer armies were to charge ahead, cross the Meuse, and then swing north. And the sixth panzer army was the one that was really expected to achieve the breakthrough. Now, the American reaction on the whole was one of total confusion, refusal to understand what was happening. And General Bradley, in fact, on that particular day, um, had left to go to Versailles to see Eisenhower. And it was the morning that um, Eisenhower heard that he was to get his fifth star 
far. So finally, he was back on the same level as our Field Marshal Montgomery. And um, they chatted away, and then suddenly news came in of a German offensive. And Eisenhower, to his credit, sensed that this was big. Bradley refused to believe it. Partly also, one thinks, because Bradley had underestimated the potential of an enemy attack. And he'd only left four very weak divisions in the Ardennes, and he failed to accept that he had actually made a major mistake in that particular sense. Uh, they did not think, he could not believe that the Germans could get together uh, an offensive of that particular size. So, uh, Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Um, there was a certain amount of chaos, but at the same time, um, the whole German program depended on the shock and awe of brutality. Four days before the attack on the 12th of December, Hitler had summoned all of his divisional commanders and the army commanders to the Adlerhorst, his sort of headquarters in the West, and lectured them on the need for brutality, cruelty, and so forth, basically to shock the Americans into collapse. He felt that this was sort of the tactic. Now, as we found and saw, both in the Sino-Japanese War and in the invasion of the Soviet Union, actually the shock and awe of cruelty does not automatically create total collapse. It can also provoke the most desperate resistance. Mm. And this is also what happened in the Ardennes, because there were, although many American troops, particularly the sort of replacements and the green troops, uh, who had no idea what was going on, uh, often surrendered or ran for it, um, there were groups who actually fought back with tremendous bravery at particular points of crossroads and key villages. And this fatally broke the program or the momentum of attack of the German forces. And so they did not achieve, if you like, that critical mass uh, and critical speed necessary for a breakthrough. I'm Jonathan Meads, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Well, I want to talk about one of the, the, the sort of key figures of the offensive then now that absolutely symbolises Hitler's, you know, idea of the sort of the brutality and the shock and awe, and that's uh, Piper. Jochen Piper. Who's, I mean, he's like almost a sort of moustache-twirling <laughs> Nazi from central casting. He's, uh, he's such a, you know, a, a true believer. Well, he was very much a sort of the good-looking beau ideal of an SS officer. Um, you know, clean-shaven, black hair, slicked black, and all the rest of it. But, I mean, in Russia, uh, on the um, Eastern Front, he was famous uh, for his brutality. In fact, his particular unit was known as the Blowtorch Battalion because of the way that they would torch villages and kill all the inhabitants and so forth. Um, that was sort of the Waffen-SS way of pursuing their objectives in war. Piper was to lead, basically, he was the armoured spearhead of the whole mm. thing. His Kampfgruppe, or battle group, um, which was extremely, uh, extremely strong with um, tanks and um, half-tracks and so forth, was to punch its way through all the way to the Meurs uh, and 
hopefully open up the route for the others to follow. Um, But once again, although Piper's advance was extremely rapid um, on the second day, it was pretty slow on the first because some of the tanks ran into mines and uh, others were held up, in fact, by the infantry in front of them. Mm -hmm. And Piper was, of course, absolutely furious. But on the second day, he really broke through. But he started straight off at Hansfeld, one village where they were uh, massacring both American prisoners and Belgian civilians. Mm -hmm. And this pattern carried on uh, through to Stavolo, again, a massacre of uh, prisoners and so forth. But um, the most famous massacre of all took place, it was called the Malmedy Massacre, Mm. and in fact it was just south of Malmedy at the crossroads at Bourniers. Uh, where a virtually unarmed um, artillery observation battalion ran into the SS vanguard and um, was basically shot up and the uh, soldiers were rounded up, um, about 135 of them rounded up, and then suddenly um, the SS started shooting and um, altogether 84 of them were killed. Uh, some had been wounded and then had a, a cockfish, uh, a, a neck shot, as the German army used to refer to it, uh, through the back of the head, and they even shot a few civilians who tried to hide some of the American prisoners. Now, this caused such rage, uh, as one might imagine, in the American army when news got that within a matter of a couple of hours back to First Army headquarters, which was actually not very far away at Spa, um, and then it spread to Versailles, to Schaeff's headquarters with Meisenhauer, and to Bradley at Luxembourg. And there was a, an immediate determination that uh, revenge would be taken on the SS, but unfortunately of course, that sort of spread to almost any German soldiers who were taken prisoner. Although many historians in the past, I'm afraid, have always been reluctant to face up to the fact of the killing of prisoners. I mean, in the First World War, it was far more common than has ever really been uh, acknowledged. And but one has to also understand the different reasons for it. Uh, There could be um, furious revenge. There could be often reasons like revenge for a friend, a buddy who'd been killed. In some cases also, I'm afraid, there was just, uh, it was purely, if you like, administrative simplicity, because particularly armoured troops had no spare soldiers to send back as escort. Um, So people uh, in armoured troops often, and this was on both sides as well, would kill the prisoners straight away. What I found very alarming uh, was, of course, that this was encouraged even from a very high level in um, on the United States Army. Whether that, to what degree that actually filtered down, it's very hard to tell. But one could one knows from the conversations of uh, generals, both Bradley and of General Simpson of the Ninth Army, uh, who was thrilled that the 30th Division was fighting back in such a way that uh, it was now being, the Germans were now referring to the 30th Division as Roosevelt's butchers. So there was a deliberate encouragement, I think, of this. And although the Germans had certainly started it, the Americans certainly didn't hang back in this process of shooting prisoners. I wanted you to say something about Piper's eventual fate, because I think it's, you know, it's an interesting illustration that these things don't, don't end with the end of hostilities. Well, no, the story carried on quite a way. Uh, first of all, Piper and um, uh, many of his men, I think about 74 of them or whatever, were, uh, were tried for war crimes. Um, a number of them were sentenced to death, including Piper. Uh, this was commuted. Uh, and then, of course, in uh, after 47, um, 48, when um, sort of West German administration was uh, more or less set up, many of them started to be, to be pardoned. And Piper, I think, stayed in prison, as far as I remember, it was about 11 years uh, before he was released. And then, rather bizarrely, he went to, uh, decided to go and live in a sort of remote farmhouse in the French Alps. Um, which you would have thought was a, a fairly unwise thing, considering his reputation mm-hmm. and, uh, and fame, or la- infamy, if you like. And um, once the French members of the old French resistance found that he was there, um, Piper's days were numbered, and apparently um, he actually said to a French journalist, saying that I will soon, in a typical sort of uh, Wagnerian way almost, I will soon be joining my comrades in Valhalla. Um, and sure enough, um, it wasn't long before his farmhouse, we, whether he was shot or not beforehand, we don't know, but whether his farmhouse was sort of set on fire deliberately, uh, but um, certainly local members of the old resistance were after him. But you say it wasn't long, this was in 1976. Well, when I say it, was, it wasn't long, but this was, wasn't long after, after remember, sure. he'd spent 11 years in prison and, uh, uh, and, then, and then it was some time before he moved, into, moved to France. But I like the irony of the fact of him being murdered by um, ex 
French resistance fighters virtually 30 years after the hostilities ended. Yes, but, you know, long memories. Um, (laughs) Just to finish off this part, again, we've talked repeatedly about why Hitler chose to attack through the Ardennes, about, you know, he's choosing to do it when the weather was going to be bad because it meant that the Allied's air superiority wasn't an issue, Um, the fact that fighting through forests or or assembling through forests would hide the the troop movement Mm. and and the gathering. But of course it was like, it was that terrain and that time of year that really scuppered that lightning advance for the Germans as well, wasn't it? Yes. The bad weather was wonderful as a shield, if you like, because lack of visibility meant air reconnaissance um, was pretty rare and patchy. And uh, also very little air reconnaissance was carried out over the Ardennes Eiffel uh, forests. So this is one of the reasons why the Americans were caught out. But on the other hand, of course, it was a double-edged sword because it meant that the ground was absolutely saturated at that time of the year. And what they had uh, badly underestimated, which is very surprising for the Germans considering their uh, experience in the Soviet Union, uh, was, of course, that the, the mud meant that, A, a lot of the lorries of supply trucks would not be able to get through afterwards, especially after the tanks had churned up all the tracks. Because, I mean, in the Ardennes, there were hardly any real roads. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were very few metal roads. They were nearly always tracks, which actually could be churned into, um, into, into an absolute mud mire um, in no time at all. And this is one of the real elements which uh, slowed them down. It also meant that their consumption of fuel was several times greater than what had been estimated. So although um, Field Marshal Keitel, General Field Marshal Keitel, had uh, estimated their fuel requirements, um, the trouble was also that Allied bombing and prevented the um, fuel from getting across the Rhine. And the other thing, which was the American reaction. Now, as I say, Eisenhower, I think, was probably at his best in the first few days of the Ardennes of getting that quick reaction by not only bringing in reinforcements so rapidly. I mean, at one point, they actually brought in nearly 90,000 men uh, in 24 hours. And I mean, only the American army with its huge quantity of trucks, but also its organisation uh, was capable of organising such a thing. But those trucks coming in, bringing the reinforcements, also took out the fuel supplies uh, from vulnerable depots. So the whole idea that um, the Germans would be able to go punching on forwards as a result of capturing American fuel depots proved to be completely false. Atoms. I'm Neil Denny and I'm talking to Anthony Beaver about his book Ardennes 1944, Hitler's Last Gamble. And Anthony, I want to take a closer look at a couple more personalities from the, um, from the German side. The first one particularly being to counterpoint Piper, who we talked about in the first half. Um, and this is Oberst Frederick August Hayden, who, um, well ended up leading Operation Stossa, which I'll ask you to tell us a little bit about. But let's talk about him, first of all, because mm. he's not a... Uh, not like Piper. No, Heiter, Heiter actually was an extremely intelligent man. Um, I interviewed him, in fact, about the Battle of Crete. Um, he was a great friend of Paddy Lee Firmer and George Weidenfeld in Vienna um, well before the war. And um, Heiter was actually a, a law professor, as well as being a colonel of the paratroopers. Mm. Um, an extremely brave man, who was also actually morally brave too. It's very rare to find physical bravery and moral bravery going together. Um, because of the way that he stood up to the SS mm. and uh, basically insulted the um, commander of the uh, 17th SS Panzer Division. And uh, they wanted to have him arrested and all the rest of it because of his basically anti-Nazi stance. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Um, and his relations. And his relations, indeed. I mean, you know, Hunter had to fill in a, a, a sort of formula, um, a response paper, uh, on sort of who he was related to, because at this particular point, after the July plot, uh, Hitler was obsessed, uh, not surprisingly, that the whole, not just of the general staff, but above all of the aristocracy, were against him. Mm-hmm. Um, and to a large degree, it was true. I mean, they... They used to uh, despise the brown band, as they used to refer mm-hmm. to the Nazis and so forth. And um, Heiter was certainly one of them. He was openly, openly contemptuous, mm-hmm. um, but sort of, you know, carried on to do his duty. And even though he was ordered to carry out this virtually suicidal mission with supposedly 2,000 paratroopers, uh, in the end, not, not, not only a small number actually ever reached the target, he was forced to uh, do this drop well behind the lines to seize particular roads and crossroads to help the German advance of the Sixth Panzer Army. But he'd been to see Sepp Dietrich, who was probably drunk, according to Heiter, um, and um, had no clue, really, how to handle things. I mean, it was well known that his chief of staff was overworked to the point of nervous collapse because uh, Sepp Dietrich was such a useless commander. But anyway, Heiter was, in theory, uh, under him and uh, had to do his bidding, which was to seize these two roads uh, towards Eupen in the rear of the American lines uh, and hold them until the breakthrough came. Well, the breakthrough never came. Uh, Many of his men were hurt in the parachute drop because they were thrown out of the... um, and they jumped from the aircraft in wind speeds which were way above the um, legal uh, safety limit. Mm -hmm. Um, And most of their weapons were lost in the descent. So, I mean, it was an absolute disaster in that particular way. And Heiter was um, eventually uh, had to surrender. I mean, he was... Uh, in an extremely bad way. He was very ill and had um, probably broken his arm on the fall. And the other person I wanted to, to bring in briefly is he's sort of related to one of the more famous incidents of, of this campaign. This is um, Otto Skorzeny, mm. um, who, well, I think, I mean, he deserves a book of his own. He's <laughs> such a character. Well, Scorzini as a character, yes, I mean, as a thug um, of the First Order. I mean, Scorzini was very large and tall and had this uh, terrifying um, schlager scars from sort of duels at university across his face. Um, He was an Austrian. I mean... um, um, Heiter described him as a total, as a total sort of, you know, thug and uh, uh, and so forth, and so did, so did others. He were, had basically been um, tasked by Mussolini, uh, sorry, tasked by Hitler, mm-hmm. to uh, go and rescue uh, Mussolini from where he was being held in 1943 at the Gran Sasso, uh, up in the mountains. And actually, it was quite an easy operation for Scorzini and his. Uh, Commanders, because basically the Carabinieri were holding Mussolini up there uh, on the orders of the sort of temporary Italian government, were not prepared to fight back, and so that was very straightforward. But uh, German army officers used to joke that um, uh, Scorzeni had been given the Knight's Cross of the, the Iron Cross for having carried this out, and then they joked, and of course he'd have received a higher award if he'd taken it back afterwards, uh, because they thought that Mussolini was the biggest disaster which had ever happened uh, to the Axis. Anyway, in this particular case, uh, Hitler summoned. Scorzeni, well before any of the generals knew about Operation Helpsnabel, about um, Autumn Mist, the attack in the Ardennes, uh, to tell him to prepare uh, forces of uh, American-speaking troops to basically break through and capture key bridges and mm-hmm. so forth to accelerate the advance. And, in fact, uh, only a small number really were capable of uh, speaking. Those really were Germans who'd returned from the United States um, at the beginning of the war and sort of say knew some of the lingo but I mean the idea of training these guys so they had to hold their knife and fork in the same way as American soldiers as if they're actually going to get into a canteen with them um, and that they had to watch all of these American films so that they were taught how to tap their cigarettes on cigarette packets before they lit, lit them mm-hmm. and details like that were all ludicrous because none of them even got that far um, most of the um, Operation Greif, which was these uh, jeeps with a few, um, with four American um, dressed soldiers mm-hmm. uh, in them, uh, was actually a mistake straight off because the Americans never put as many as four in a jeep. Mm-hmm. Uh, three was the absolute maximum. So there they were revealing themselves almost straight away as being slightly dubious before um, the Americans realized what was happening in that sense. Uh, the only effect, positive effect, if you like, of this whole operation was that one of those captured told talked of a rumour that 
uh, they were really trying to go and capture Eisenhower. They were mm-hmm. going to go and kidnap Eisenhower. And this caused total chaos and panic on the Allied sides. It meant that sort of roadblocks were set up everywhere, which slowed things down. And uh, uh, Eisenhower in Versailles was in a sort of lockdown from the counterintelligence corps because they were so paranoid about his security. So, I mean, apart from sort of uh, a total over-the-top American reaction to the mm-hmm. whole thing, uh, it actually achieved very, very little. All those captured were executed um, for having tried to uh, break through in Allied uniform. And in fact, the tanks, which were camouflaged as American or Allied vehicles, as uh, some of them were Shermans which had been captured, others were German tanks sort of painted and disguised as Allied ones. They were then used in another attack later, but that they never served their purpose of actually causing any form of breakthrough. I'm Dylan Evans. Go and read some great new journalism and explore the interview archive at littleatoms.com. Let's move ourselves toward the, the conclusion of the campaign. And so there are key incidents, battles, the battle for Elsenbourne Ridge and mm-hmm. the siege uh, at Bastogne that I guess mainly sort of sim- symbolise this idea that, you know, Hitler thought that the Americans would be easy, they would capitulate, they would, they would fall back, mm. and they didn't. They didn't, and I think that you know there, all, there were one or two uh, generals who could spot right at the beginning the the right strategy, tactics, whatever uh, to adopt. Tactics really. They knew that they had to hold the northern and the southern shoulders, i.e., either side of the breakthrough had to be strong. Mm-hmm. So the northern shoulder was the Elsenborne Ridge, which yeah. actually uh, was extremely effective. It was some, an old Belgian army depot. Um, and they brought in all of their artillery. They had altogether 23 artillery battalions up on the Elsenborn Ridge. So they were able to hammer the German rear, but also um, basically interfere with the whole of the supply line of the Germans coming through. And right in the south, they were able to hold the southern shoulder there without too much trouble. This was just sort of north of Luxembourg. But the, the key place, in a way, was, first of all, Saint-Vite, uh, which was near the front, and they knew that this was sort of one of the road network centres of road networks. Uh, so they had to hold that to slow mm-hmm. them down, which they managed to managed to for a sort of heroic fight of about five days. And the other place, of course, was Bastogne, and this was where they sent one of their most immediate reserves. Um, they had two. Uh, they had the two American parachute divisions, the 82nd and the 101st, in reserve near Reims in France at the camp of Montmelon. And the 101st was sent to Bastogne, and it got there just in time uh, before the German panzer divisions broke through. And by uh, holding Bastogne and forcing the Germans to take huge circuits around, they basically um, slowed down that advance very dramatically. Hitler, of course, as he'd shown before in the Soviet Union, when he was frustrated in achieving his breakthrough across the MERS, um, then immediately sought a sort of what I might call an ersatz or a replacement objective. And so the Battle of Bastogne um, almost became, rather like the Battle of Stalingrad, the sort of replacement objective for the whole offensive. And it was never the plan at the beginning. And that's why it became such a sort of desperate, desperate battle. And so at what point then does this offensive. At what point is it over? When does it sort of categorically fail? The German generals, particularly Manteuffel, reckoned within two or three days that it had mm-hmm. failed. I mean, they simply, because they had not achieved uh, the momentum of advance, they knew that the Americans would be able to bring in reinforcements and that would eventually block them at the MERS, if not before. The actual, uh, in terms of the actual advance, it was really was Avery on Christmas Day or the day after Christmas on the 26th of December. I mean, that was their furthest point when the 2nd Panzer Division uh, got to within about four miles of the MERS at uh, Dino and uh, were counterattacked. They were actually stopped by British tanks. Um, though you won't find this in any um, American account because Montgomery stirred up such uh, resentment and the afraid so the British contribution has been rather written out. I'm not mm. trying to pretend that it was very large, but in fact, um, I think two things are slightly significant that American mm-hmm. versions tend to wipe it out. And because Montgomery had uh, realised that the uh, defence of the MERS was absolutely vital. So right from the start, he'd moved uh, the 30th Corps all the way around so as to be able to block the MERS at those particular points, Dino and others. And um, uh, that was really the sort of high point of the whole thing. From then on, it was just going to be a slugging match. And the trouble was that the Americans, and this is where they were so angry with Montgomery, 
Uh, Montgomery actually was justified in, and very sensible in what he wanted to do, which was to allow the Germans to go on battering against Allied defences because you could kill far more Germans that way for f- fewer losses on your own side. But the American generals, especially Patton, Collins and others, uh, were desperate to have a conspicuous victory, uh, and Bradley above all, to wipe out the humiliation of having been caught napping mm-hmm. because they knew, especially Bradley, had heard that there was, might be a um, Senate investigation into the intelligence disaster and so that's why Bradley was so desperate to have the bulge crushed uh, as soon as possible. I want to go on to talk about you know what if anything impact this campaign had on the rest of the war the outcome but Mm. just parking that for a second you've raised Montgomery again Mm. and although this is not directly necessarily related to to Ardennes it's more about the whole advance across France but you mentioned the, you know the idea of you know the Americans sort of writing the British out of accounts of, mm-hmm. of this campaign but what happened also basically removed any further influence of the British over the over the outcome of the war didn't it? It did I'm afraid Montgomery had a exasperated them quite often in his handling of the generals I mean when Montgomery arrived to take over command of the northern side of the bulge because Bradley was trapped down in um, Luxembourg um, and therefore couldn't exert command and Bradley was horrified when he heard that Eisenhower had taken this decision but I, it, was the, it was the right decision in the circumstances. Also because uh, Hodges, the commander of the first army, US army, was in a state of collapse at that mm-hmm. particular point sort of nervous collapse. But Montgomery did not make things better by arriving as one of his own staff officers described like Christ coming to cleanse the temple um, and then he humiliated the generals, he then humiliated Bradley on Christmas Day Bradley was offered, he claims and it may well have been true, just an apple for Christmas dinner, having been sort of summoned to see Montgomery at his headquarters um, all of this was totally unnecessary and again I'm afraid then when it came to uh, early January and the British press was egging on Montgomery in this way, again claiming when it was announced that he had actually taken over command of the North saying, now Montgomery must be made land forces commander for the whole of um, Europe basically. And the American press was furious and the American generals were furious, not surprisingly. And then Montgomery persuaded Churchill that he should be allowed to give a press conference in which he could praise Eisenhower and saying how much we should support him. And unfortunately, of course, Montgomery not only made his uh, statement, but then couldn't uh, resist getting carried away and basically boasting how he'd won the whole battle. And German uh, propaganda very cleverly broadcast on BBC... um, wavelengths, another version which was even more extreme or whatever, which Americans heard and believed. And the effect was catastrophic because A, Montgomery just simply was ignored from then on and cold-shouldered. It also meant that when he, when it was a question of crossing the Rhine, uh, Montgomery was basically pushed off to the side and was not allowed to go anywhere near the, sort of the centre of the front at all. And uh, Britain lost all influence in Allied um, councils. When there was the meeting on Malta, just before the Yalta conference, uh, everything that the British uh, put forward was immediately vetoed by the Americans. And the Americans were in the driving seat, there's no doubt about it. I mean, Britain was losing its influence very rapidly. And I'm afraid it received the coup de grace from Montgomery's egotism. So, yeah, so what did Hitler's decision to launch the Ardennes Offensive ultimately achieve? What outcome did it have for the rest of the war? Well, it certainly um, slowed down the um, Allied advance in the West, there's no doubt about that. Uh, But its most important um, effect was, of course, to sacrifice, um, for very little advantage, uh, the bulk of his remaining armour. Now, as Guderian had wanted, you know, if that had been transferred to the Eastern Front, the Soviet attack in mid-January into East Prussia, but particularly from the Vistula all the way to the River Oda, would not have been nearly so easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Russian um, historians, of course, are not very keen on accepting this particular possibility. Uh, but it means certainly that the Americans uh, could easily have got to Berlin first mm-hmm. uh, in that particular sense. In fact, the Americans could have got to Berlin first as things stood, mm-hmm. um, but Eisenhower vetoed the idea. He did not want to suffer casualties for something for capturing areas which were eventually going to be handed over to uh, the Soviets anyway afterwards. Could things have been different, finally? So when Hitler was first proposing this this campaign, some of his generals sort of said, OK, well, it's, you know, it's, it's a terrible idea, but there's, there's something we could do there. You know, there was a smaller mm. solution. Yes. Could the outcome have been different? 
I don't think the uh, whole outcome of the war would have been very different at all. I mean, you know, whether the war would have gone on for a few more weeks uh, or fewer weeks or whatever um, is, is impossible to tell. Mm-hmm. And I don't, really, I don't really like playing sort of counterfactual uh, games in that particular way. I mean, one needs to pose the question, of course. I think, though, that the real, uh, real effect, of course, was the way that it was much easier uh, to destroy the Germans in the open. Yeah. Um, when they were attacking, um, because obviously the attacker always loses more casualties in the end, than battering away at very effective German defensive positions along the Siegfried line and um, and elsewhere. And I mean, they, these were causing very, very heavy American and, and Allied casualties in the north as well. So the outcome, in fact, probably probably accelerated the end of the war on balance. Uh, but I don't think that uh, one can say that it, it sort of changed anything in that way. So I've been talking to Anthony Beaver. We've been talking about his book, Ardennes 1944, Hitler's Last Gamble. Anthony, thank you so much for coming in and telling me about that. Not at all. Thank you, Neil. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89Up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.